discovered that I am literally at the heaviest that I have ever been in my life. Congratulations. <laughs> Welcome. <laughs> and I'm eating vegetables a little bit. Like I'm working on it. Well, so. I remember when we worked together. Well, like, so for our listeners who don't know, you are very much like picky about what you eat and you don't like vegetables or fruit very much. <laughs> I so, like fruit. I, okay. Not all fruit. I Okay. So I also, I like to put it out there. I don't say that I am picky. I have a lot of like trauma, I guess, okay. around food. And okay. so I, I think the like official like DSM term is like avoidant re- restrictive food intake disorder, right, which right. is like a less, I guess, it's still bad, but not like it's an eating disorder, but it's not like anorexia or anything like that. So it t- like to eat something new or that I'm not familiar with, like my throat, like almost physically feels like it's closing and I'm dying. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, <laughs> I was just going to tell the, the story of the one day where I was sitting at work. Oh, and then yes. you just busted out of nowhere, like run past me and you like stick your head in the trash can. And I was like, oh, my God, is she, like, puking right now? Like, what on earth is happening? It was just, like, completely out of nowhere. And so you, like, pull yourself out of the trash can, and you're like, oh, my God. Our boss made me try to eat a blueberry. Yeah, right? she, was like, yeah she, like, I never had a blueberry. Sorry, people. Like, blueberries is on, like, my anxiety kind of list. And our boss at the time, who is of questionable character um like literally like locks me in her office and like won't let me leave until I eat a blueberry even though I'm like I don't I don't want to I don't want to and she makes me eat the blueberry and I tried so hard to like chew and swallow I like chewed and I was like all right I'm about to die and like poor Rachel had to see me like head deep in a um in a trash can which like I am very I used to have like severe like vomit phobia like legitimately a hundred percent but I think having exposure to things like that have helped me get better and you weren't even throwing up so it's fine yeah yeah and having exposure to being tortured with food um while (laughs) isn't the most helpful knowing that I survived has been helpful in um dealing with some of that so I'm very proud of you. (laughs) You're moving forward. Yeah, I'm trying. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Pink Collar Crime, a true crime podcast focusing exclusively on crimes committed by women. I'm Rachel. And I'm Natalie. If you're joining us for the first time, welcome. Each week, we're going to tell you about one or two cases of crimes committed by women and discuss details, motives, similarities, and differences, etc., etc. If you like our show, tell your friends. Please subscribe and give us a five-star rating and tell us what you love or don't love about the show. And give us a follow on social media at pink collar underscore pod. All right. So this week we are doing. We're doing something a little bit different this week. Yes. I hope you've all 
been building in anticipation since we kind of accidentally took a week off because, you know, life gets in the way of things. Yeah, I mean... And it was my birthday, so... Yeah, we, we needed a break, but... <laughs> we did. Yeah, this was Rachel's really cool idea, so go ahead. Oh, thank you. Um, so basically our, our idea, our... I'll say our. I'll give you credit, too. <laughs> um, I was thinking... Um, actually, I was starting to read this book called Savage Appetites, um, written by Rachel Monroe, a fellow Rachel. So like all Rachels are cool. Um, but she wrote this book. It's uh, Savage Appetites, Four True Stories of Women, Crime and Obsession. And it goes into stories of women in crime, kind of similar to what we do, but from different perspectives of like one of the stories she went into was about, you know, women in the field of crime and a woman who, you know, really furthered the field of crime. Is that the right way to say it? She didn't commit crimes. She wasn't like maybe law enforcement. I don't know. You get what I'm trying to yeah. say. Yeah. Um, and it was like talking about the um, viewpoints of being a victim of crime. And it was just a really overall interesting and really fascinating book. And it also kind of went into a little bit of um, how women now are like are the biggest demographic for true crime stories, which is the case clearly um, with myself and the fact that we're even doing this podcast, you know, I think says something about that. <laughs> But what I liked about this book is that, you know, it also included um, women who were, like, contributing things to the field. So I thought it would be nice if we could do something like that every once in a while. Because as much as I love, you know, talking about cases of crime and, you know, not so great ladies out there, it would also be good, I think, to highlight women who are doing good. And um, it's not an easy field for women to get into, so... Um, any woman who, yeah, any woman who does it is just, you know, a pioneer. Yeah, a lot of um, kind of furthering that field, that very, I think, broad field of like criminology and things like that. I definitely, even in my research, I just was like, female law enforcement, female like detective, <laughs> like, and I found a lot of like really compelling, like cool stories. And so, yeah, I'm excited to get into this. Yeah, there will be definitely more to come. I'm really excited about this topic, and I think it'll be interesting to see, you know, I think bringing a woman's perspective to, um, you know, investigating crimes or things like that is just such, you know, a needed perspective. And, you know, um, having women around when crime's going, I feel like I don't want to gender stereotype, but, you know, um, having that like compassion and empathy, women are often seen as, you know, more caring. And I think as far as like helping the victims um, of crimes, that's like a nice perspective to have. Um, my case in particular will go to show, you know, how having more like typically feminine characteristics are still extremely valuable um, in, you know, researching crimes and things like that. Okay, so it is your turn to go first. Yeah. Um, so in the email I sent you to, this is kind of unique, I'll also post this link um, in our Spotify descriptions or I don't even know. Um, so podcast I sent description. you podcast descriptions. Words are hard. I'm just really excited. So this is like an interactive experience. Um, okay, I don't know I if you see. saw. I, I click I'm, on it. I'm on the link now. And then scroll down to the picture. Yes. Okay. Cool. So do you, do you want to 
describe what I see. Yeah. (laughs) Okay. So this website, um, it looks, I guess it's like a recreation, like a diorama of Mm -hmm. a crime. Um, it look, it tells me a little bit about the crime. It says nutshell studies. Mm -hmm. Number one kitchen. The deceased is Robin Barnes and the witness is Fred Barnes, her husband. Um, yeah, it's like a little doll, someone laying there. Do I, what do you want me yeah. to do? <laughs> no, you're good. Okay, so it gives a little yeah. bit of a description of, you know, a quote from the the husband of saying that he, like, went out to run an errand and he came back and he found his wife dead on the floor. So the scene is like a little diorama, a little dollhouse scene. Yeah, um, of their they're... kitchen, their fridge wide open, their oven is open. Mm-hmm. I guess recreating what it looked like. Cool. Yeah, so there's a woman laying on the ground. Her feet are kind of under a stove. If you roll your um, clicker pointer yeah, mouse, yeah. mouse um, over the um, picture, it'll give you some descriptions mm-hmm. and like kind of different um, aspects of, of what's going on in the crime scene. So it'll say, you know, um, there's like an ice cube tray next to the, the victim's head. So it's saying, you know, look and see the, the temperature of what's in the refrigerator since the refrigerator door is open are the ice cubes melted um it's there are there's like a knife off in the corner so it's saying okay you need to look at the knife see if there's any knife wounds on the body that's on the ground um look at the body itself the woman has very flushed cheeks which you know may indicate carbon monoxide poisoning the oven's open she was in the middle of cooking um so the point of this scene was to be um, like kind of a training tool for, for law enforcement. This is, was created by the woman I'm going to talk about today. Um, so as far as the answers for um, this, some of them, she, she made multiple you know, dioramas or, or little crime scenes that were you know, all dollhouses. Um, some of the answers were shared, some of them weren't. I'll get a little bit more into that later, but if our few listeners who are on want to go and take a look it's just a nice you know visual to kind of kick things off i really love this wallpaper that they have going on there's like little animals and flowers and a boat like it's great and she the the woman made the wallpapers herself which is great um so i will get on to my actual story cool so this site Fran- is really cool, by the way. I'm- I know. I was, like, shocked. And this is one of the stories covered in that book, Savage Appetites, which really drew me in. Um, so Frances Lee Glessner was born in 1878. Her father was a wealthy industrialist and a patron of arts, and her mother was a craftswoman. Their home in Chicago's Prairie Avenue, the most exclusive and wealthy neighborhood in the area, was always well-decorated, and the Glessners often hosted dinner parties with their rich and affluent friends. As a child, yeah, in Chicago, go Chicago. It's funny because Prairie Avenue is actually in the south side of Chicago. So back when this took place, it was like a really fancy area. But now, not as much. But, you know, it has great architecture still. So as a child, Lee was fascinated with mysteries written by Arthur Conan Doyle. She had many different hobbies, including silversmithing, painting, and crocheting. Fun fact, I've tried to pick up crocheting over this quarantine and it's going horribly i'm just making (laughs) knots with yarn and i don't know what i'm doing wrong and it makes me really sad but kudos to her for being great at you know crafty type things you should paint i'll teach you okay yeah i'm down 
<laughs> do I do I get to get a blowtorch? If you want, yeah. I yeah, love that's mine. What, that's what Natalie <laughs> does. She makes paintings with blowtorches, which is pretty cool. Uh, so Glessner aspired to study medicine. When she was younger, she um, collected, you know, crime scene photos and transcripts, not transcripts, manuscripts from crime scenes. She kind of had a little bit of a collection there. She knows she was really interested in these types of things. But her plans changed in 1897 after she took a grand tour of Europe and made her societal debut. When she was 19 years old, she married Blewett, which I've never heard that name before in my life. And it's so weird. <laughs> Blewett? Yeah. Poor guy. Blewett Lee, who was the law partner of one of her brother's friends. They had three children together, but ultimately separated in 1906. Over the years, Lee fought for a divorce, and in 1914, Lee ended up moving across the country for a fresh start in Santa Barbara. Eventually, she returned to the East Coast, and she split her time between Boston and her cottage at the Rocks. So this cottage was unreal. They were referencing the Rocks in the article, and like the Rocks was capitalized. And I was like, I've never heard of this before. Why are you referencing it when like it's not a well-known thing, at least in my mind? And I'm on the East Coast, and I've never heard of it. Um, but it, supposedly it's in New Hampshire. Um, so, uh, I lost my place. Um, so they would travel to their summer home in New Hampshire in the rocks, um, by train every summer. The big house was the main home of the property, but there also was a greenhouse, a bee house, an observatory, and many other structures. Their family ended up donating the rocks to the Forest Society, which, um, the requirement was that there always needs to be a crop in the field. And the crop ended up being Christmas trees. So to this day, you can go and harvest your own Christmas tree from the land, which is a totally cool. like unrelated story. But <laughs> goes to show, you know, she grew up very well off, surrounded by, you know, culture and never had a need in the world. Um, in the early 1900s, Lee owned an antique shop with her daughter. After the death of her brother and parents, Lee took over the management of the family's dairy farm at the Rocks. During this time, Lee's close friend, George Burgess McGrath, a classmate of her brother at Harvard, became one of the country's first medical examiners. He strongly advocated for the use of ballistics in crime investigation, and he also advocated against politically elected coroners, believing only those who are medically trained should investigate any suspicious deaths. Which I think sense. is a platform we can all get behind. Um, yeah. In 1931, Lee inherited a lot of money from her uncle, which she used to fund the new Department of Legal Medicine at Harvard Medical School. Cool. I know. It, sadly, it doesn't exist anymore, but uh, it's great. You know, in 1931, that's, you know, quite a while ago, and this was kind of um, a new thing. This didn't really exist anywhere else. Um, she appointed her friend McGrath to be the chair of legal medicine and donated her collection of manuscripts to the George Burgess McGrath Library of Legal Medicine. Don't know why it was named after him when it was, like, yeah. she gave all the money and did all that, but whatever. The department officially opened in 1938, and they had the most advanced crime scene technology at the time, including plaster casts of certain injuries and also plaster casts of uh, wounds of bullets or powders, as well as specimens of gross bugs I don't want to talk about. They, I don't know. There was like a little paragraph talking about bugs and like decomposition. And I was like, 
I don't even want to look further into this. I'll just say like gross bug stuff was there um, and move on. So in 1943, the New Hampshire State Police commissioned Lee as their first female police captain and educational director. What year? 1943. Okay. Probably. I don't know. Um, at the time, police <laughs> didn't know how to properly secure a scene for a medical examiner. And in some cases, a medical examiner, you know, wouldn't even be educated on anything. Um, they didn't know how to properly identify evidence that might be helpful to determine the cause of death. So Lee dreamed of a seminar where police around the country could come and visit the Department of Legal Medicine and learn the latest advances from their staff. At the time, at the same time Lee was using her resources to further the field of crime scene investigation, women officers were not allowed on beat uh, in patrol cars and wouldn't be for another 25 years. So it was fantastic that, you know, she was able to get so far and do so many things but it's also ridiculous that they wouldn't you know for so long women still weren't able women officers weren't able to to go out and yeah do patrol rude anyway um so nonetheless lee thought of a solution that would allow officers to get firsthand experience uh investigating crime scenes so she got to work with her carpenter ralph mosher and later his son alton to create what would be known as the nutshells so what I had shown you at the beginning of this podcast. Um, and they made them in a workshop at The Rocks. The nutshells were these little diorama dollhouse rooms that depicted crime scenes. The details in these nutshells were unreal. So Lee made sure to include every little detail that might be present in a real-life crime scene and went as far as including little keys that rested in door locks and lights that would turn on and off. Um, the hand-rolled cigarettes were less than a millimeter thick. She also made little pencils that had out of toothpicks that had real lead in them. Cool. So she sewed curtains, designed the wallpaper, and even painted mini portraits for the, the rooms. She used pins and a magnifying glass to knit little clothes for the dolls. And she used lithographic printing to make teeny tiny newspapers. So she went all out and made these like so realistic, which I think you can see. Um, some of them are all yeah, online. So yeah, if you go look at it, it's super realistic. Very Definitely much recommend checking it out, guys. Attention to detail. It makes me want to make dollhouses. Like, okay, anyway. Um, so Lee wanted to include even more detail in her nutshells, but wanted to make sure they didn't end up looking too gadgety. Um, the dolls were stuffed with cotton and BB shot material, so they, according to the New Yorker, would have the malleable heft of a corpse. Lee based the cases off of actual crime scenes shared with her by McGrath. She would hand paint ligature marks on the necks of the victims, and she would also paint the skin to show effects of liver mortis. So Lee not only wanted to include intricate detail that made these crime scenes as realistic as possible, but she also wanted to portray death across social and financial statuses and really demonstrate the frame of mind at death. Her scenes include women, the poor, you know, kind of people that were generally considered to be the outcasts of society. She really wanted to encourage policemen to overcome their biases and really focus on, you know, what was actually going on in, in these crime scenes. Um, do you get, like, so excited when you're reading your cases that you, like, 
don't breathe. Yeah. <laughs> and I'm like, I need to take a second. I need to breathe. Okay. In 1945, Harvard held the first police seminar, which included lectures from the brilliant minds in the Department of Legal Medicine and had viewings of the crime scene nutshells. Within three years, Earl Stanley Gardner, an attendee of the seminar in 1948, said the program was as sought after in police circles as bids to Hollywood by girls who aspire to be actresses. In the morning, the police people would attend the lectures and in the afternoons the attendees would be led to a room with black painted walls the officers would be given a flashlight and were assigned two nutshells each lee had instructed they had two responsibilities to clear the innocent and expose the the guilty they would be warned that the witness statements uh, that came along with the nutshells were not always accurate so they would have to really rely on the details of the crime scene to determine what really happened some of the answers to the nutshells have been released, but some have been kept a guarded secret. So not all of the scenes have satisfying answers, and in some, biases of the police and medical examiners have tainted the crime scenes, making them impossible to solve. The seminar um, always ended in a lab in an elaborate that was like a tongue twister banquet <laughs> at the Ritz Carlton Hotel in Boston. Lee aspired to give the law enforcement the best that money could provide. Um, this is kind of funny. She told the wine steward at the event to cut off anyone who started to talk in too loud of a voice, which I feel like I, I do that sometimes with Evan. Um, when he's drinking wine. <laughs> um, but Lee um, eventually died at the old age of 83 in 1962. She Aww. left some money. I know it's sad, but she's not going to live forever. <laughs> she did. Um, so she left some money to the Department of Legal Medicine, but when it ran out, Harvard eventually closed the department. The manuscripts that Lee had donated from her, you know, personal collection from her childhood, were absorbed into the regular library, and the nutshells were moved to Baltimore at the request of the state's medical examiner, who studied under Lee's program at Harvard. These days, the office of the chief medical examiner in Baltimore has some super high tech uh, medical sander stuff including a lab outfitted with uh dna technology and a high-tech full body scanner um but they still have the nutshells there and they still use them to this day i think they've made some rounds or rotations at different museums which is really cool but the fact that they're still being used to this day to yeah. help with training is just so awesome these days no that is really cool here's here comes a sad ending so these days there are still very few training programs for cops and some counties still only require a high school education to be an elected coroner um which is a little disappointing to hear but also at the same time i feel like maybe not all counties necessarily have the resources or maybe even like the population size to you know, fund a medical examiner. I don't, like, a, a doctor medical examiner. I would have to look more into that to be more educated, but it's crazy that someone with only a high school education would be allowed to be a coroner and kind of, you know, be able to determine cause of death and, and things like that. Yeah, it doesn't really make much sense to me. I feel like regardless of what your county can fund, like, 
I don't know, like share with a, with a neighboring county. I don't know. Like, I just feel like we wouldn't say, oh, this county is a little poor, but they need a judge. But hey, this guy, he just got his high school diploma last week. So put him on the stand. Like, true, true. Um, and so I just feel or, you know, I assume most places have some access to some doctor at some point, mm-hmm. you know. So I don't know. It's just it, it, I, I never knew that there are places where or there have been or there possibly still are places where medical examiners don't necessarily have like MD or DO level medical training. That's interesting to me. Right. I feel like John Oliver did something on it. I might have to go rewatch it. But um, nonetheless, what an interesting woman she was. And so, you know, not typical of what was expected of her at the time. And I think that it's great that she, you know, she was very well off and she used her money to, you know, fund these things, these training programs for police. And also, you know, in her work, she focused on, you know, highlighting uh, people of lower socioeconomic status, people who may not get the attention that they really deserved if there was, you know, a crime that that happened. Um, so yeah, if I totally recommend to everyone to go check out the the crime scenes. I think um, this kind of goes back to what I was saying earlier about, you know, having a woman's touch or, you know, <laughs> more like womanly quote unquote characteristics of being able to really put the attention to detail and using her craftiness to, to create these, um, you know, little crime scenes is just so cool. She's like one of my heroes. I actually really like, I'm obsessed with like many things. So like, <laughs> this is right up my alley and I totally 100% like want to make dollhouse crime scenes now. So maybe that'll be the next quarantine hobby that I pick up. And if I come visit, like, next time I'm there, like, your whole place will be filled with little dioramas that'll be terrifying. Oh, my God. Can you imagine? Or little dioramas that Gary can live in. That would be I was cool. just going to say, she would probably, like, eat things yeah. out of the crime scenes and then make them unsolvable. So, my case, or my person i don't know this week um is another georgia so last week i did georgia but this week um this woman is very much the opposite of georgia tan (laughs) um she gave people's babies back to them (laughs) pretty close um so i am doing georgia and hill robinson um the first black female police officer in the LAPD and according to many sources the first black female police officer in the United States mm-hmm. so Georgia Robinson was born Georgia Ann Hill in 1879 in Opelousas Louisiana I've never heard of this place at the time it sounds like they had 1600 people and now it's only like 16,000 so pretty small place um, there doesn't seem to be any record of who her parents were and most accounts of her life that I found state that she, um, didn't know who they were and that she spent the early years of her life being raised by her older sister. Eventually she went on to live in a convent and be raised by nuns. In the charge of nuns, Georgia completed her high school education and was fluent in several languages, including Spanish and French. Good for her. Because of her educational accomplishments, 
um, at the time in 1897, when she was 18 years old, she moved to Kansas to work as a governess. A governess is a woman who's hired to privately teach children, usually um, wealthy children or children of wealthy families um, in their home. So the only like example that I could think of is like Anne Sullivan, um, who taught Helen Keller, if you've ever oh, okay. watched the Mir- Miracle Worker with the little Pepsi girl. <laughs> um, yeah. I think, I don't know if I've seen that. If I did, I forgot it, which is... I highly recommend. She's blind. She's deaf. She's well, I know mute. who Helen she Keller reads. is. <laughs> I know who she is. I just don't know if I watched that specific movie. Gosh. Anyway, while in Kansas, she met Morgan Robinson and they married and eventually moved to Leadville, Colorado, which is like, I don't know, like probably less than two hours away from where I am. So, hey, there they welcomed a daughter named Marion in 1907. According to the biographical database of suffragists, um, Georgia is recorded as being the first black woman to attend a state suffrage convention in Colorado. Um, later, Georgia, Morgan, and Marion relocated to Los Angeles, California. Georgia got involved with many community organizations, including becoming a key organizer in the LA branch of the National Association for the Advancement of Colored People, more commonly known as the NAACP. In 1916, the world was already two years into the Great War, which we also know as World War One, uh, which meant that across the United States, police officers who at the time were largely just men were enlisting to serve in the armed forces. As such, there was a great shortage or at least a need for new police officers and law enforcement support. A recruiter for the LAPD came across Georgia through her community organization um, and activism work, and the recruiter was very impressed by her. So at the age of 37, she was recruited to first volunteer with the LAPD. Um, She did so for three years, and by 1919, she was so widely respected that she earned the opportunity to become the LAPD's first black female police officer when she was hired as a jail matron, which I think is like a corrections officer. Um, It's also believed um, that she... Jail matron? Yeah, jail matron. Yeah. Um, It's also believed that she was the first black female police officer in the United States altogether. There um, doesn't seem to be any other accounts of another black female police officer um, elsewhere before her. But maybe they other places had bad record keeping. Who knows? Um, So in addition to working as a jail matron, Georgia was also involved in juvenile and homicide investigations and cases. In this capacity, Georgia saw that there was a serious need for a women's shelter in Los Angeles. So she established the Sojourner Truth Home for Women and Girls in Need, named after the African-American slavery survivor, abolitionist, and women's rights activist. Uh, Georgia was also affiliated with the Florence Crittenton. Crittenton? Do you know who this is? Crittenton? <laughs> Why are you asking me? Okay. I don't know uh, things. I don't know. You're a woman. <laughs> <laughs> Um, so Georgia was also affiliated with the Florence Crichton Home for Unwed Mothers, and she actively worked to reserve rooms for pregnant women of color. Uh, she also worked several clerical jobs and worked with women and juveniles in addition to her police work duties. In cases where other police officers might have arrested young black women and girls, Georgia took a social welfare approach and would refer them to social agencies instead. 
Her actions and activism in this regard led to the LAPD's first formal attempts to provide services to the black community and dismiss the stereotype that African-Americans or black people were more naturally inclined to commit crimes compared to their white counterparts. Uh, So Georgia was sometimes referred to as the female Booker T. Washington of Los Angeles. Um, Not only was she empathetic and activist-minded, she demonstrated a significant amount of physical fitness and bravery in her role as a police officer. She didn't shy away from getting involved in challenging physical situations where um, I think other male police officers might have expected her to kind of back down. So she had no qualms about stepping in to keep the peace, stop criminals, etc. throughout her time with the LAPD. Unfortunately, in 1928, while stopping a fight between two prisoners, one prisoner got a hold of Georgia's head and smashed it into the wall. Yeah, Georgia suffered a traumatic brain injury so severe that she permanently lost her eyesight. She retired from active duty in the police force in 1929. And despite her disability, Georgia continued to uh, provide community service and activism and support of the NAACP and civil rights, including... um, programs to stop uh, segregation in schools. And decades later, when she was asked about her time with the LAPD and the events that resulted in her blindness, she responded, I have no regrets. I didn't need my eyes any longer. I had seen all that there was to see. Oh my God, she's my hero. <laughs> Amazing yeah. woman. Um, and she died in, in 1961 at the age of 82. So she lived a long life that's pretty much it it's a pretty short case for me (laughs) um i I just think that's so cool yeah i thought it was really cool um i think like even now so i watch a lot of live pd Mm -hmm. (laughs) um and i i'm surprising i'm not a fan of the show it's almost like one of those things that you watch because you hate it so much is that like cops yeah it's like cops and, but there's like three dudes that like interject and they're like oh so here's what we're seeing one of them is called sticks i don't really get it but um like the guy's name is sticks yeah and i assume that's not his real name but i think God, they I call him not. sticks <laughs> but so yeah it's a lot like cops and it's it's live though so they just uh show it like on a delay but it's the things that are happening that night and I have plenty of times, especially since I do, like, opioid-related work, like, through my own, like, research and stuff, mm-hmm. um, where they, like, come into contact with people who I'm like, okay, they're clearly intoxicated. Like, they clearly are not right now being defiant to you. Mm-hmm. They cannot, they, they don't have the wherewithal to, like, comply or do, like, what you're asking, but you're showing, like, an aggressive show of force Mm -hmm. and i i don't know i just don't necessarily feel like the best approach is you know punishing certain people i don't think we should criminalize we should be criminalizing addiction i think it's a medical condition a psychological like mental health condition and medical condition that needs to be treated and i think that there are a lot of cases um of crime in general where yes we can punish this person we can penalize the crime we can do that but the greater and I think the more helpful thing is probably to take almost like a social work right. um, 
like approach this person needs help they you know and so I I think that what she did was a very kind of like beautiful marriage between law enforcement and being like socially minded like okay you're in a bad situation you are a victim of circumstance prison could work but also maybe getting social services could also work too right and so um I yeah I definitely think she um was a force for good when it comes mm-hmm. to the police force so um, I appreciate kudos that. to her shout out to being the first black woman police officer much respect um yeah well, right and that mm-hmm. just goes to show where I feel like having a woman's perspective and her you know coming from that or being able to have empathy more accurately to someone who's going through a similar situation where like if there's a white male cop you know talking to um a young black woman girl lady i don't know like there might be it just you aren't as easily able to aren't as easily able to empathize or sympathize with with the situation so it's good to have you know viewpoints coming from from all over and i totally support having like social workers in law enforcement i wish i would have gotten my degree in social work because it's just so cool um and you can always go get an msw if you want i really don't want to go back to school (laughs) do it online it's not that bad i'm poor Uh, that's true i feel you i also already have a degree um (laughs) No, I just, well, from my stance, it's interesting because I think social work and counseling, which is what I have my degree in, are, depending on what you do with it, end up being more similar than not. I think if you have your degree in social work, you can go the route of doing private practice counseling and working with people more long-term. And then, because, like, my... um counterparts when I was doing my internship some of them would be social workers and some of them would be counselors so I think just depending on what you do with it they can end up being close to the same thing which I obviously didn't go through the coursework of being a social worker but um social workers are definitely preferred in like hospital settings or you know like um I think within law enforcement and things like that which they're starting to become more incorporated which is you know fantastic I think in terms of like because, you know, like, police are called to many, like, crisis situations where, you know, maybe there's no one who's trying to harm someone else, but someone might be a harm to themselves. So I think it would yeah. be really helpful to have, like, a caring, like, warm presence there. Not that, you know, police can't be caring and warm, but... But somebody who's trained right. kind of in that sort of a, that sort of situation. And I think we see time and time again of, like different cases just on tv where things are escalated by police um whether through their fault or through the fault of the person that they're engaging with Mm -hmm. um and maybe you know having like a trained person especially in law enforcement situations who can de-escalate who can you know throw in some motivational interviewing (laughs) tricks like please get (laughs) off that ledge (laughs) like right um i think i think yeah like social workers do serve like a really great need my my new rachel at work is also a social worker she also just got her phd congratulations rachel in the event that you're listening (laughs) Um, rachel's everywhere yeah rachel's are usually pretty cool so (laughs) um and so yeah i definitely i i'm i'm slightly biased towards it though my 
my personal route is gonna be psychology but yeah i think social workers are cool Our music is the track Wasteland by Joseph McDade. His Patreon and our podcast sources will be linked in the podcast description below. Any mistakes are entirely our own, so check out our wonderful sources for the most accurate information about these cases. We talk about some tough subject matter on our show. If you or someone you love is in need of support, please reach out to the Crisis Text Line by texting HOME to 741741. They are available 24-7 and will connect you with a trained crisis counselor. You can also reach the National Domestic Violence Hotline by calling 1-800-799-7233. Thank you so much for listening to our show. Join us next week for another episode of Pink Collar, a true crime podcast. <laughs>